Thank y'all a ton. Appreciate it. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to GBC again. Really fun to worship with you. Um, we have, we've got a great passage to cover today. It's, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Um, it is not on the gift of tongues. Last couple of weeks, we've been on the gift of tongues, and so it's nothing wrong with that, but I'm glad to be moving to, to new subject matter. It, it is going to be, I'll, I'll warn you in advance, it's, it's nuanced. I, I don't know that it's complicated, but it, it's kind of nuanced. And so you're going to have to fight hard to stick with and, and kind of listen from a, a couple of different angles. So let me, without further ado, because of all that, pray and ask for God's help. Bow your heads with me. Lord, thanks so much for your grace. Thanks, God, that uh, we are a, a family because of the blood of Christ. And uh, we are brothers and sisters, and we come together uh, first and foremost, to glorify you, but we want to glorify you by edifying each other and, and sharpening each other and spurring each other on toward love and good deeds. We, we want, Lord, to sit under your word and that your spirit would bring us to blessed points of conviction, that our lives would be changed, and, and that we would glorify you in the life that you have given us. And so help all of that to be true. We realize we don't do it. We realize you do that through us and to us. And, and God, we just pray that you would, and we pray that we would be willing participants. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If y'all have been around here very long at all, you, you probably know that I am really proud of my family, um, as, and especially my, my two brothers. They are both, I think, really sincere. They're, they're both really great leaders. Um, my, my brother Fred has taught me a lot about leadership. He thinks I'm going to mess with him, and I'm not. Um, and one of the things that, that Fred has said, I mean, probably a dozen times to me over the course of the last 15 or so years, and, and it's, it's not new to him, but, but he does it well. He says the issue is rarely the issue. You say that, don't you? Yeah, so he, he says the issue is rarely the issue. And I was thinking about that. The issue is rarely the issue. That has been so true the last couple of weeks. So true. Because over the last couple of weeks, Paul didn't think that the gift of tongues is that big of a deal. I mean, he says over and over again in the preceding chapters, tongues is not the most important thing that, that a church would do. And, and yet we had three weeks on the gift of tongues. And, and ultimately the issue, tongues, was not the issue, the, the much bigger principle of edifying the body, of proclaiming the truth, and that's the prophetic voice in the church, uh, of loving others and understanding how we gather together, not just to receive a sermon, but to invest in each other because we are the body of Christ. Those are the issues. Tongues is, is what manifest. It was, it was the vehicle by which those principles were were brought up, but the issue, tongues, was, was not the issue. And, and I hope over the last three weeks that that came out, that there were other things, more important things at play. The issue, tongues, is rarely the issue. Well, this week is different. That, that is true. That is true 99% of the time. This is the 1% that is different. The, the issue today, this issue today, is always the issue. Just, just so y'all know, a lot of times the issue is rarely the issue works. It doesn't work here. It, it, it simply doesn't. This issue, what we will be talking about today, is literally always the issue. It is behind everything 
Paul says it. I believe it. I hope you will too. Let's pay attention. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to start with verses 1 through 4. Paul writing, he says, Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So what is this about? It's about the gospel. It says it. It says, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you. Now, the gospel just means the good news. And Paul here is talking about the good news, the gospel, and it's always implications. And, and when I say always implications, I think that's what Paul is really trying to drive home in this text. He says three things about the gospel. He says, you received the gospel. He says, the gospel causes you to stand. And then you are being saved by the gospel. Those are the three things that he says. And, and there's always implications. And here's why I say that. When it says you receive the gospel, that is in the Greek aorist tense. I'm not going to totally geek out here, but that's just the simple past tense. It's, it's the most basic past tense. It's aorist. You received the gospel. Then he goes on to say the gospel causes you to stand. Now that's, that's a little bit more of a complex tense. It, it's the perfect tense in Greek. That's a past completed action, but it has ongoing consequence. So you've got aorist, the simple past tense. You've got the perfect past tense, an ongoing or a past completed action with ongoing consequence. And then the last thing he says about the gospel is you are being saved. Now that is the present tense. It, it's, it's a present tense verb, but it has ongoing consequence. That's what the present tense indicates. So past past, up to present, present on forward, the gospel has implications no matter where you're looking, no, no matter what's going on. Mary and I are watching the show Friday Night Lights. I, I think, I'm guessing some of you have seen it. Evidently, I'm the last person in America to watch this show Friday Night Lights. I'm, I'm not watching the movie. I've heard that's good. I'm watching the show. Now, some of you are really into Friday Night Lights, so I'm, I'm going to give a disclaimer. I, Mary and I, are only up through the middle of season two. So anything that I say that is inconsistent with Friday Night Lights in general, specifically from year two through five, I'm not responsible for that, okay? So don't, I, I do not want to give a 30-minute sermon on the Word of God and have you come and contend with me about Friday Night Lights. That, that's stupid, okay? So just Here's the deal. Yeah, I shouldn't call you stupid, but that would be stupid. <laughs> Mary and I are watching Friday Night Lights, and, and Friday Night Lights is fascinating. If you've watched the first season and a half, you're going to see something pretty consistent. They all go to church. They all go to church. All the pastors in Friday Night Lights dress poorly and are follically challenged. It's so unrealistic. <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed that, but... None of those guys, I mean, there, there's not a cool pastor on Friday Night Lights. And I'm like, come on! It, there's, I'm coming to a point that matters. 
Friday Night Lights, it's, it's a fictitious story about Dillon, Texas, and the high school football team. It kind of revolves around the high school football team. Um, everyone in Dillon, Texas goes to church. I mean, it, it's, it's part of the cultural fabric. And then seemingly everyone in Dillon, Texas sleeps with other kids in the high school Friday, Saturday, Tuesday, like there is so much hot tub sex in Friday Night Lights. Like you're like, I mean, the two things you see, you see them worshiping on Sunday in a variety of different churches and, and then they're, they're all naked with each other. And, and how does that happen? Okay, like the, the <laughs> what enables that? Seriously, stop laughing. What enables that, like this, this division, that like seemingly nobody's got a problem with, with worshiping and, and, you know, like enthusiastically worshiping on a Sunday and, and then living a life that is very contrary to what they are professing on, on Sundays, like what enables that? And I think there's probably a, a bunch of good answers to that question. What enables that duplicity? Hollywood? Hollywood, I mean, they're creating it. Hollywood enables that. Sure, whatever, that's fine. High school hormones, yeah, I'm, I get that, that. There's a lot to that. Theologically, I want you to get out ahead of this. What enables this bifurcation, this I'm going to believe and, and be enthusiastic in one setting here, and I'm going to live as if I don't believe any of that over here. What enables that? Theologically speaking, a view of salvation only in the past tense is what enables that. The way you've heard it is fire insurance salvation. I, I believed past tense in Jesus. He saved me past tense from my sin. I have fire insurance. I'm not going to go to hell. And there is a disconnect between that event and us ultimately going to heaven such that people can do whatever they want. It, it, that's the deal. And, and so I just want to remind you again that the gospel that Paul is preaching, we received in the past tense, true enough. The gospel causes you to stand perfect, past completed action with ongoing consequence, and you are being saved, present and ongoing. The salvation that gives us fire insurance is also the salvation that transforms us and gives us hope for the future. That's ultimately what Paul is driving home here. The, the last part of verse 2, it says, if you hold fast and unless you believe in vain. Now, I want to explain that real quickly. Uh, it, it looks like it's really bad news. If, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you and then unless you believed in vain. It's kind of a good news, bad news deal, honestly. The, the good news is the if you hold fast isn't as bad as you might maybe think it is. It, like, it sounds like Paul is saying, if you don't live out what I'm teaching you to live out, God's going to revoke your salvation. That's not what he's saying. The if you hold fast is a first-class conditional clause in Greek. It, it does not express doubt. You can translate instead of the if in a first-class conditional clause since. It would ultimately be something like, 
since you hold fast to the word I preached to you. And then the caveat there is, unless you believed in vain. And the word in vain there scares me. It means unless you believed without purpose, unless you believed inconsiderately, unless you believed without cause. And ultimately what that says is there are people who profess faith in Jesus who have believed in vain because these people would say they believe in Jesus. And Paul is raising the point of, like, I think you're fine unless you believed in vain, unless you believed without purpose. That's, that's what the text says. And so it begs us to ask the question, for what? For what did you believe? Like, I get that you're saying you believed in Jesus. That's generally good. But there's plenty of people in America who say, of course I believe in Jesus. I'm an American. And, and maybe Paul is here raising like, hey, for what reason did you believe in Jesus? Like, did you just believe in him because it's your, your national religion? Not sure that's going to get you anywhere unless you believed in vain. It's, it's at least raised as a possibility. This to me is scary. People who identify as Christians, people who identify as Christians, who nonetheless, according to Paul, have believed in vain. We better figure out for what purpose we have believed in Jesus. Paul's not going to leave us hanging. That's, that's the good news here. Like he, he, He's not just trying to make us insecure and say, go out and try harder. That's, that is not what he's doing. He's going to give us in verses 3 and 4 things that we should hang on to for the rest of our lives. He says in verse 3 and 4, for I delivered to you as of first importance. This is really important. You better pay attention. That's what of first importance means. What I have also received. So Paul didn't come up with this. He is giving you what he received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised from the dead on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, the first thing that you need to know about this is it's a creedal expression. Meaning, Paul didn't come up with it. He, he was given this. It's a creed. Like it, This is something that the early church knew. Like When Paul writes this, the Corinthians, even though they disagree with Paul on a lot of issues, they're like, oh, we believe that. Everyone believes that. That is the mantra, the creed of the early church. This was known. This was accepted by Christians in that day. And there are three things that he knows that they will agree with. He says, Christ died for our sins. That we better pay attention. Christ died for our sins. Jesus was buried, further confirming his death. Jesus was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures. Let's go through those just real quickly. Jesus Christ died for our sins. There's a theological kind of category of the atonement, and it's called a substitutionary atonement. That, those are two fancy words they're probably going to be familiar to most of you. I'm going to walk through them. Substitutionary atonement. Atonement is a covering over. It's, it's actually used of, of Noah's Ark. They, they took gopher wood and there were cracks in it, and they kafard the cracks. They, they covered over. They sealed them over. That, that's where we get the word atonement. In, in the Old Testament, it comes from kafar, okay, to cover over. 
Substitutionary is a substitute covered over our sins. Jesus then, according to church tradition, according to this early church creed, he as a substitute died for us. The penalty for our sin was death. Jesus took the death we deserve and he took the consequence of it so that we might have the righteousness of Christ. And, and we are, the penalty of our sin is covered over by the work of Jesus, the finished work of Jesus, so that we might have the righteousness of Christ. He was our substitute and he covered over our sins so that the wrath of God is not upon us. And that is wonderful news. And then he was buried, which is further confirmation that he died. And then Jesus was raised, passive voice tense. He was raised by the Father. He didn't do it. The Father did it for him on the third day. And did you notice it twice in this creedal expression? It said, in accordance with the scriptures. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? You know what I was embarrassingly late to the game on? I didn't realize that when Paul is writing in accordance with the scriptures, he's not talking about the New Testament. He's not talking about what Paul wrote. Like when I think about the scriptures, I normally think the Old and the New Testament. But when Paul is writing, he's not thinking about the New Testament. He's in the process of writing the New Testament. First Corinthians is one of the earliest books. So he's, he's talking about the Old Testament, which is a challenge, isn't it? Because most of us don't think that the Old Testament really talks that much about Jesus. But, but according to Paul, he says the fundamentals of the gospel, Jesus died for our sins, substitutionary atonement, according to the Old Testament, that, that he was buried according to the Old Testament, that he was raised from the dead on the third day according to the Old Testament. Could you point out where the Old Testament says that about Jesus? Most scholars would say that 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Verses 3 and 4 are referring back to Isaiah. To Isaiah chapter 53, it is a passage about a suffering servant. It's a, it's a passage prophesying a suffering servant who would come. And, and let's talk about this. Jesus died for our sins, a substitutionary atonement according to the scriptures. Isaiah 53 verses 4 and 5, tell, tell me if this sounds like substitutionary atonement. Surely he, this suffering servant, we don't know his name yet, surely he has borne, carried our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. So, so whatever is happening to this poor guy is happening because of God, smitten by God. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Does that sound like substitutionary atonement? There, there are iniquities. There, there are transgressions, and he is crushed for us. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. What a, what a great exchange. And by his wounds, we are healed. That, that sounds a lot like substitutionary atonement. I won't go into it, but look at verse 10. Look at verse 11. Look at verse 12. They're all going to talk about substitutionary atonement. You can see substitutionary atonement pointing to Jesus in that chapter and a whole bunch of other chapters in the Old Testament. Pay attention. It's an amazing book. Jesus was buried. Further evidence that he was dead. Let me read you verses 8 and 9 of Isaiah 53. 
Tell me if you see that someone is going to be buried. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living? Cut off from the land of the living sounds a lot like dead. Stricken for the transgressions of my people, more substitutionary atonement. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Death sounds a lot like death. (laughs) Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, meaning he lived an impeccable life. That's just the fact that he would die and be buried. And then it says that Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day according with the scriptures. Surely, Nobody 700 years before Jesus would walk the earth would be so bold as to make a prophetic utterance that proclaimed that someone would rise from the dead, right? Would you be willing to make that about someone who's going to live in the year 2722? Because Isaiah prophesied 700 years before Jesus. Isaiah 53, verses 9 through 11. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. We've already talked about that. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. So we've already heard that. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt, substitutionary atonement, more of that. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Wait a second. I I thought he had already been assigned a grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. How is he going to see his offspring and prolong his days? The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see. Dead men don't see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. It's a peculiar book. Let's pay attention. Okay, so we're at a transition point in the passage. It's been about the gospel, it's been about the fundamentals of the gospel. Jesus died for our sins, substitutionary atonement. He was buried, physical burial, and and then he rose from the dead, all prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53. Now, I just want you to know, from here on, Paul is going to drill down on that last aspect, the, the, the resurrection, okay? And so, first, we're going to talk in the rest of our passage today about Jesus' resurrection, and and ultimately this chapter is going to move to our resurrection, because the Corinthians didn't believe in a personal resurrection for them. They weren't doubting Jesus' resurrection, they were just not so certain about their own resurrection, and that's what Paul is ultimately getting at. But before we go on to talk about resurrection, I, I, I want you to be aware of one thing. Note that Paul is tying his teaching on the resurrection directly to the gospel. Like, we start with the gospel, don't we? This is of first importance. And he goes with, Jesus was crucified for our sins, he was buried, and he was raised on the third day. And he has already said, don't forget the gospel that I preached to you. These are the points of the gospel that I preached to you. But now he's going to go do a deep dive into the resurrection, but the resurrection is tethered inextricably to the gospel. Now let's look at verses 5 
through 11, and we're going to see more on the resurrection. So he was raised on the third day in accordance with Scripture. That's the end of verse 4. And that he appeared to Cephas. That's Peter, trust me. Then to the 12, that's the disciples. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, that's his half-brother, and to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, me being Paul. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But... By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. There's a lot going on here. And resurrection is not our strongest suit. And so I'm just going to try to ask a couple of questions of this passage and and see if we can derive the meaning based on asking and then answering a few questions. I think it's the simplest way to get through this. Here's the first question. What's the significance? What's the significance of Paul listing all of Jesus' appearances after his resurrection? Why does he do that? Why does he do that? Because he he spends a lot of time, right? I mean, it, it says he appeared to Cephas, and then to the 12, and then to the 500 all at one time, most of whom are still alive, and then to, to James, and then last of all, to me, one untimely born. And like he goes all the way with chronicling Jesus' resurrection appearances. Why? It's a question you ought to be asking. Paul certainly is proving Jesus' resurrection, and he's doing it on his way to proving the existence of general resurrection, resurrection that would apply to the individual Corinthians, But why prove it? Before we go on to answer that question, let's just acknowledge this. It's a pretty convincing proof, right? Like, think about this. If if you're here today as a skeptic and you're like, I don't know about this organized religion thing and Christianity, there's a bunch of hypocrites, all true. But what do you do with the resurrection? What do you do with a religion that is based on the resurrection of an individual who appeared on multiple occasions to different groups. One group had 500 people in it. Look, if if I'm going to make up a religion, I'm going to make it about someone who lived a long time ago so that nobody by their own report could discredit me. That's how I'm going to do it. And I'm also not going to make it, if I'm making it up, rest on the testimony of 500 people because if I'm making it up, I've got to coordinate the testimony of 500 liars. You know how hard that is? I have a hard time coordinating my own lies. I don't want to be responsible for my lie being upheld by half this building. Good luck. One person recants and they're killing me. I don't want to do that. Christianity, as opposed to most of the world religions of the world, is falsifiable. 
Falsifiable doesn't mean that it's false. It means that if it is false, you could prove it so pretty easily. They, they talk about a Messiah. They hang their hat on a Messiah that has 500 plus people witnessing his resurrection over multiple courses, and most of whom are still alive. Paul's basically saying, go ask any of them. That's a falsifiable religion. It's a falsifiable religion. A lot of those 500, most of the apostles as well, were willing to die for the truth of the resurrection. How many people do you know who would be willing to die for a lie? So this proof, it's a good proof. It's a convincing proof. It's, it's all true, at least I believe it to be so. But here's what bugs me about this. It's not really where Paul is going with the argument. Like that, that's what sticks with me. Paul isn't trying to convince the Corinthians of Jesus' resurrection. He's trying to convince the Corinthians overall of the importance of believing that they shall experience resurrection. So why is he spending so much time trying to prove Jesus' resurrection? He had him at hello. Like he, he's basically like the Corinthians believe in Jesus' resurrection. Why spend all this time talking about all these people? I, I just don't think it's where Paul is going. I, I think there's actually another reason for him chronicling all of Jesus' resurrection appearances. And we'll get to it later. I'm going to leave you in the tension because I don't think there's much else that's going to cause you to keep listening, honestly. Just tell you where I'm going with that. So why does he spend all that time? It's not his main point. Hopefully we'll get after it later. Let's go to the next question. Why does Paul spend so much time self-deprecating? Now this is an interesting question. Look at what Paul says about himself. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born. He's talking about himself, that word untimely born. It, it means like a miscarriage or even an abortion. He, he's calling himself the equivalent of a miscarriage or an abortion. Nobody really knows what that exactly means. They just know it's not good. He calls himself the least of the apostles. He calls himself unworthy to be called an apostle. Ultimately, we can find out that he calls himself all of those things because he was a persecutor of the church. But, but here's the question. Paul has spent a lot of time in 1 Corinthians talking about his worthiness as an apostle. He's kind of undoing the argument that he's been making, right? Why would he do that? Like, this, this seems to be an unraveling of Paul's previous points. Why does Paul spend so much time self-deprecating and, and calling himself such bad things? I, I get that he was a persecutor of the church, but he, he seems like he's suffering from low self-esteem. Doesn't it seem that way? I mean, that seems hard. One thing is clear. One thing is clear. Paul wants the Corinthians to know that he was far from God. I mean, isn't that clear? I mean, you read it, I read it, anybody reads it. Paul was not saying, God picked me because I was better than you. It's just not what he's saying. He, he's like, 
untimely born, unworthy, unworthy to be called an apostle. I persecuted the church. I was far from God. I was nothing if not unworthy. Next question. Why does Paul, after spending all this time self-deprecating, and I mean really over-the-top language here, why does he then immediately start bragging about how hard he works right after he's basically called himself a worm? Oh, what a worm am I? But I worked harder than everybody. Like, you're like, schizo. Like that, trying to track the logic here is tough. It's tough. Is this Paul being like an American? I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. Is is Paul proclaiming the Protestant work ethic 1,500 years before there's such a thing as Protestants? Like, how... What do we do with this? What, and, and why? I'm nothing. I worked harder than everyone. I mean, like, they're right next to each other. Right next to each other. Is Paul just being self-congratulatory? I think, I think the solution is found in, in verse 10. Paul says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. That is with me. I, I think what Paul's spending all this time doing is he's highlighting the contrast between what he was, a persecutor of the church, pretty bad guy, enemy of God, and what he is, And it's not to say, look at me. Paul is highlighting the contrast, and then he's highlighting the cause of the contrast. Did did you see that? He's highlighting the contrast, but then he's highlighting the cause of the contrast. He's, He's basically saying, in terms of the contrast, I went from persecutor to proclaimer of the gospel. I I worked hard against God, and now I work hard for God. And, And then the next thing he says in verse 10, this is not about me. It's not about me. It's all about the grace of God. The grace of God wasn't in vain. That's what the text says. I hope you haven't believed in in, in vain, he says to the Corinthians. He goes, one thing I know of. The grace of God toward me was not in vain. It wasn't empty. Ultimately, what he's saying is, it has transformed my life. And he's, he's giving all the credit to God. Say, this is not about me. This is about the grace of God. It has changed me. How? How has the grace of God changed Paul? The key. This is why Paul is spending a chapter in 1 Corinthians talking about it. Is resurrection. The key is resurrection. It is true. Resurrection is true. That's why he spent all that time on evidence. But it changes everything. And ultimately what he's talking about is not just the evidence, but the experience of resurrection. Let me break that down for you. The apostles. What were they like before the resurrection of Jesus Christ? In a word, pretty inept. Another word would be clueless. They 
tripped over themselves. They argued amongst themselves. They were never seemingly on the same page as Jesus. I don't want to beat them up too bad, but I promise you, before the resurrection, if you had said Jesus is going to leave the church in these guys' hands, good luck with that. Good luck with that. They, they did not inspire a lot of confidence. And then after the resurrection, after they see a resurrected Jesus, after the indwelling Holy Spirit comes into them, and that's all part of the resurrection, they're a pretty powerful force. And, and they do some pretty great things. He talks about Peter, too. He talks about the apostles. He talks about Peter, Cephas, Peter. Denied Jesus three times before he was crucified. Remember that? Rooster won't crow until you've denied me three times. And, and he did. And he goes and he, he kind of hides. And then Jesus meets him on the beach after his resurrection and cooks him breakfast. It's an incredible scene. And Peter ends up, I mean, being the rock, being the foundation of the new church. P Peter ends up being crucified because of his faith in Jesus upside down because he did not want to be crucified. He did not feel he was worthy to be murdered, killed in a manner similar to his Lord Jesus. And so he had him do it upside down. Like that, that's different than denying Peter. The Corinthians are denying resurrection. They're like, we don't, we don't think it's for us. Paul is basically in this text saying transformation is tied to resurrection. The 500 who will testify about me at their own peril, it's because they've seen me resurrected. The, the apostles who will die, Paul himself will have his head cut off because they can't crucify him because he's a Roman citizen, but, but he'll be killed for his faith. It's all tied to the resurrection. Ultimately, transformation is tied to the res resurrection, so much so that he, Paul is basically saying, to deny this is to believe in vain. It's to believe in vain. We started by saying that resurrection is always the issue. The issue is never the issue, works most of the time. Today, it's not. Resurrection is always the issue. Has Jesus' death and resurrection changed you? Or have you believed in vain? That's what the text is about. Are you like Paul? Are you like the apostles? Are you like Cephas, Peter? Are you like the 500? Or are you like the people from Dillon, Texas? Are you like the people on Friday Night Lights? Are, are you here on Sunday, but way over here Monday through Saturday? I promise the difference is Resurrection what it's about. Jesus didn't die to give you permission to stay the same. He didn't die just to give you fire insurance. He died so that you could first and foremost be secure in the love of Christ. I mean, what a blessing that is. That is a truth of the gospel. But he didn't just die to secure you in God's love. He died to transform you by God's love, by the indwelling Holy Spirit, by our identification, our union with Jesus. As he died, we died. As he was raised from the dead, Romans chapter 6 verses 1 through 4 says we are raised with him and we have kainos, new life. His resurrection is our resurrection. Resurrection matters. It's always the issue. Let's pray.
Father, help us not to settle for some sort of clay similitude, some sort of cultural Christianity. Father, I pray instead that we would be people who, by the indwelling of your Holy Spirit, by the empowerment that he brings, that we would participate in the resurrected life of Christ and that our lives would be transformed, that we might bring glory to your name. I pray, God, that we would repent of the hypocrisy and the cultural expressions that are lesser than what you have called us to. I pray, God, that instead we would live for your son, Jesus, and for your glory. And God, we are so grateful for your grace. It is all because of you. You have done everything in us. I pray that we would demonstrate that by the lives we live empowered by resurrection. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.